Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm Rob Pickles, he's Trevor Connor, and somewhere around here is Grant Holicky. Yeah, he's probably on his phone somewhere. Well, Trevor, this was a good year. Rob, this was the year you joined us back in January, so it's been almost a year for you. It has been. Huge journey. I hope everybody's been enjoying it along with me. I think that we had a lot of great learnings, a lot of great memories, and a lot of great laughs. And I think today, what we should do is round those up for our listeners. So we are doing a Favorites of 2022 episode. Are you ready with your clips? I'm ready with my clips. Are you ready with yours? I spent all weekend working on mine. I'm excited for this. Grant, how about you? Still on this phone. All right. Well, here we go. Fast Talk Laboratories offers deep dives into your favorite training topics like intervals, polarized training, data analysis, and sports nutrition. Take a look now at our cycling-based training pathway. Now is the perfect time to see how to lay the perfect foundation for an awesome season. In our new guide to cycling-based training, experts Joe Friel, Dr. Steven Seiler, Brian Kohler, Dr. Annie Pruitt, and I show why good base training isn't just about riding endless miles. We share how to plan and structure your base season, how to monitor your efforts, and how to track your fitness gains so you start your next training phase with a strong aerobic engine. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways. So guys, I got a funny one for us. And uh, I don't know if this started me off on the right foot or the wrong foot, but Chris, I'm glad that you're sitting next to me now because you were sitting next to me when this funny thing happened and you picked up on it immediately. And that's how Trevor introduced me to the show using the word filling in for Chris. <laughs> yes, I remember. That was a mistake that I will never live down. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. And only 42 episodes later, he was back. And believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, he filled in for a bit. Well, I'm obviously not filling in that well. So yeah, let's listen now. <laughs> We have a final thing that we need to do before we hit our sign-off, which is announce our newest host. We have somebody who will be filling in for Chris. And Chris, would you like to make an announcement? Though there is an, uh, there, there's an asterisk on this. But Chris, would you like to introduce our new host? This guy? Me? You've already been introduced, haven't you? Rob, it's been two weeks. Is this, it's, it's me? <laughs> yeah. I'm Mr. still P- filling in? How do you... That doesn't make that me feel was, good that about was my poor phrasing. That right? was poor phrasing. Did yeah. I say filling in? You, you did. I don't know. I, I apologize. Temporarily. Str- You're inter- uh, interim uh, host. Let, right. let me correct. Struggling to try to get within the ballpark of what Chris did <laughs> wow. here. Wow. I mean, will be... I'd, oh. I'd say that it'd be big shoes to fill, but those are like, what, nine, nine and a half or so? You're Euro size 45. Oh, hey, no. Those are bigger than Nine. That's not much. Nine and a half is not Bowling balls don't usually have feet. <laughs> you're, you're fortunate. No, it is. It's very true. Hey, Trevor, question for you. Yes. Do you ever have an episode where your mind is just blown by the guest? I've had many. Mm. Well, my I learned something clip comes from Dr. Stacy Sims. I thought that I was kind of knowledgeable about the topics of female athletes. But this conversation we had with her... Only a man would say that. I know, it's true. I think I was shown shown the light, to tell you the truth. This conversation we had about carbohydrate and the female athlete and carbohydrate timing, for me, I 100% learned something and tried to put this into practice immediately after learning it. So props to Stacy for blowing my mind. Basically, every time I listen or read anything by Dr. Stacy Sims, I walk away with that same mindset. Right. 
what I actually loved about that episode is we didn't quite know how we were going to approach the episode and the episode evolved organically, but really came out with a nice structure of let's talk about the issues that women face in their twenties. Let's talk about the issues women face in their, their thirties, their forties, their fifties. And each phase ended up being a really good conversation. And every single time I was going, didn't know that, didn't know that. It was quite informative. So we could have picked from almost any of those. Oh, without question. Let's listen now. So I'm really interested in this because you look at sports nutrition right now, it is all about carbohydrates. Like you look at the work of Dr. Eugendrup and it's, we got to figure out how to cram more into you than your body can normally handle because the more carbohydrates you can get, the better. But you're saying that's not necessarily what's best for women. So what would be your recommendation? You know, for example, this is great. We're now seeing grand tours for women. Tour de France is going on right now. The men are cramming in as much carbohydrates as they can at the race. What would their strategy be? So for women, it depends on the hormone profile. So if we're looking at things like carbo-loading, we know it doesn't work for women. Primarily because in the high hormone phase after ovulation, the menstrual cycle, estrogen progesterone's job is to take carbohydrate and protein and shove it into the endometrial lining. So when women are like, oh, I'm carbo-loading, in fact, that carbohydrate is going to create glycogen stores in the endometrial lining, not in the liver and the muscle. And when we look at fueling, the, how the body fuels during endurance exercise in that high hormone state, this is where women clear blood sugar quickly and then go into more free fatty acid and amino acid utilization. So if you're looking at high intakes of carbohydrate during that phase, it sits in the gut. Because the body's like, I, I can't handle this much. I have a slower gastric emptying rate. I'm more sensitive to carbohydrate. I can't absorb as much, especially if it's fructose-based. So when you're seeing girls and women who are trying to put in a lot of carbohydrate in the moment, this is where they start hitting the wall. They start getting a lot of GI distress. So we look specifically at let's increase total carbohydrate intake in the meals. Because this is how your body is going to have more carbohydrate availability. And this is how we can tap into it. So then during exercise, you're not going on necessary grams of carbohydrate per hour. We're looking more at calories. Okay, how many calories? And it depends on workload and, and again, the hormonal factor. So if we're in the high hormone phase and the calories per hour, there's more coming from carbohydrate. If we're in the low hormone phase, the body does tap into more liver and muscle glycogen. So you have a little bit more carbohydrate available for keeping blood glucose elevated. But we know that you go through that more rapidly. So in that particular phase, the low hormone phase, we want more carbohydrate with protein because the default when we start getting too low in carbohydrate is to burn through amino acids and then get into free fatty acid use. So we have to understand where the woman is in her hormone profile to be able to be more prescriptive in what they need when we're talking about the elite level. In the more age group level, it's more of a fitness dependent. So if your body is used to using more carbohydrate, then you're going to be okay if you're using that as long as you're attenuating GI distress. But the fitter you get, the more we need to be in tune with where you are. Are you on an oral contraceptive pill? Are you using an IUD? Are you naturally cycling? Are you amenorrheic? So all of these things can actually factor into what you need to use during your race or how you're recovering. What is your fueling strategy? And we also know that nutrient timing for women is so much more important than men. And this comes from the hypothalamus, reading the nutrition density and nutrition availability in women versus men. So Trevor, this next clip is from Dr. San Milan, and I know it's a good one because 
you picked it too. We independently picked this. Almost the exact same segment. Yeah. Nerd alert. So it goes. But it's worthwhile. And this was a hugely popular episode for us. This falls into my people have to know this category. And it was from our episode on the physiology and biomarkers of recovery. And uh, it's super interesting to hear Dr. San Milan talk about how things like carbohydrate restriction or gluconeogenesis, how that changes the hormonal profile and leads to overtraining. And again, this cascade was incredible knowledge drop. And this is probably going to be the longest clip that we put in this episode because you put in an eight, nine minute segment and then said, oh, we can cut out the last couple of minutes, but I'm not going to let us cut that out because that was a big moment for me where he talks about the fact that you have athletes that get fatigued. They go to a doctor who doesn't understand athlete physiology and goes, oh, you have hypothyroidism, yep. puts them on medication and it can destroy their, their thyroid. And that was a big moment for me because we, you know, I always talk, are we really making a difference helping athletes with these episodes? We got feedback from an athlete who said, thank you, because that was happening to me. I heard your episode and I saved myself from having to be on medication the rest of my life. Right. The hardest part with this clip was trying to just not put the entire episode in here. I was constantly looking for places to cut the clip off, but it was just, it was such gold. Well, let's hear it now. Now, Dr. Sen Milan, when we're talking about nutrition being imbalanced with the training, for you, is that a general nutrition strategy? Is that carbohydrate restriction? What are we seeing from athletes that's causing the potential to increase the risk of overtraining? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I, I see there is a little bit of everything, but I, I think that if I would were to kind of identify one element, it's usually carbohydrates, right? Um, athletes, they... They, they don't, many athletes, they tend to restrict carbohydrates or not have enough. We know that when you train even at the aerobic level, right, or zone two or so, you can, you can burn or oxidize about 1.5 to 2.5 grams per minute, right? So um, yeah, that, that's a lot of carbohydrates. Also, we, we normally think that this is just fat burning zones, right? But you also burn glucose. So uh, we should not, uh, yeah, we should remember about that. So because those days are typical days where an athlete says, oh, I, I train aerobic, I burn fat, I don't need to eat a lot of carbohydrates. Well, well, actually, yeah, you burn that day maybe 300 grams of carbohydrates or 500 grams of carbohydrates. So there, that, that's right there, your entire glycogen storage is. So this is what uh, nutrition has to be there. And, and I think that uh, carbohydrates, it's a main problem that we see. Then that's where when cyclists or you know athletes they get into this vicious cycle that I call because let's say that um, you, you didn't think that you needed to replenish carbohydrates correctly today, but actually you run out of glycogen storages or were low, and tomorrow you have a, a big day, whether it's intensity or whether it's uh, duration, and you don't have enough carbohydrates. So you're going to start tapping on muscle protein because as we know, muscle protein uh, there are different amino acids. Uh, um, a main one is uh, glutamine can be uh, utilized for energy directly into mitochondria, right? Or other gluconeogenic amino acids, like many of the uh, branching amino acids can be become glucose, right? So the body has these ways to try to provide you energy. But in these situations when there's no glycogen, yeah, it's just like, it's like the muscles start eating themselves to feed themselves. And, and, and that's where you start getting into more catabolic situation and that anabolic to catabolic uh, balance is disrupted. And, and, and that 
that can put any athlete right there in, in our training in no time. Yes, certainly. You mentioned that there's an increase in energy created from protein right through gluconeogenesis. What other downstream effects does training with low glycogen have? Are there endocrine system changes or anything else? Yeah, so that's a great point too. So one of the things is like, yeah, you, you, you might have some hormonal imbalances, right? So and disruptions. So for example, the precursor, right, of, of, of proteolysis, which is protein breakdown, is cortisol. So this is one of the parameters of biomarkers that we see in athletes who have very high levels of cortisol. It's a hormone that responds to both psychological and physiological stress. So when an athlete is not mentally stressed, but uh, you see very high levels of cortisol, that athlete is, is breaking down more protein than normal probably. And then you look at the anabolic side of it, which is testosterone. So you look at the ratio and many times you see athletes with very low testosterone levels because they have to keep replenishing, replenishing the catabolic effects, right, of cortisol and lack of energy while training. So that's where you, you start getting that catabolic profile of the athletes. And that takes them to a different layer, which is more inflammation, right? So the inflammation that we see is when, when you have muscle breakdown, you end up with muscle micro tears and muscle damage. Not seen as an injury, right? But you can see muscle damage. Uh, and there, there are multiple research studies on these, right, for decades with muscle biopsies looking at, at, at disruptions in the muscle structure. But we can, we can see this in blood analysis and biomarkers. And the thing is, too, is that the physiological mechanism to repair or, or one of the physiological mechanisms to repair muscles is inflammation. Right? And inflammation also brings usually water retention and liquid retention. So this is one of the times also where these cyclists are they're trying to eat less and then they get a muscle breakdown and, and, and they get catabolic and they end up gaining more weight. And a big part of that weight is, is liquid, right? And they say, I gained three pounds or, or six pounds. So how in the world I'm eating a lot less? Yeah, but you have inflammation, low-grade inflammation. And particularly in, in the boulder area, as we know, people tend to be really hardcore when it comes to nutrition and training. And we see a lot of people with uh, muscle damage and uh, especially in the age groupers, right? I, that's something that caught my attention. People in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they have a lot of muscle damage chronically. And we still don't know what the consequences could be on, about this because normally historically we haven't seen this. This is the first time in, in humans where we see people in their 60s, 70s, training and doing marathons uh, at a regular base, right? But uh, they have low-grade chronic inflammation. Now, we know from uh, medical research and, and, and epidemiological studies that uh, chronic low-grade inflammation can, can lead to uh, multiple diseases. So this is an area where uh, I'm, I'm particularly concerned. And then the other uh, endocrine uh, responses that we see is like a thyroid function. So we know that uh, this is the thing, like I used to see before, coming to Colorado, especially maybe one people a year are diagnosed with uh, a hypothyroidism. Now in Colorado, you see, and other places in the country, sure, I'm, I'm just, you know, because we're in Colorado, we, we see hardcore athletes all the time, right? But I, I, I've been seeing once a week and the immense majority of these people, they do not have hypothyroidism. And the explanation is this, they, they are really tired, they're really fatigued for months and they're drugging their feet. And they finally go to their doctors and they do a blood analysis. And uh, part of the regular panels that are done of chemistry panels is TSH, which is cheap to do. 
And then TSH shows it's a little bit elevated, but in the, in the low high end, right, of, of uh, TSH. And so therefore, the doctor says, okay, there's like a chronic fatigue, which is a sign of hypothyroidism, and there are high levels of TSH. Bingo. So that athlete, uh, in many occasions, leaves that doctor's office with a prescription with, for thyroid medication. And when you have thyroid medication, you typically people start using like maybe 50 micro, 25 to 50 micrograms, and, and they start feeling good, but it's artificial. It's like if you're tired and fatigued and you have a, a gallon of coffee, you're going to feel good, but eventually you're going to develop resistance. And yeah. this is where uh, many of these people, they, they start with 50 micrograms, 75, 100, 125. And when they get to those levels, the, the thyroid function is gone and there's nothing you can do. So they have to be on that medication for the rest of their lives where they never needed to be on that medication in the first place. So one of the things that I've been trying to do at the School of Medicine and trying to talk to several endocrinologists working with thyroid areas, right? It's like whenever you see someone with that profile who's an athlete or active individual who's chronically fatigued and tired and slightly elevated TSH levels, please do more further analysis. Looking at T3, T4 antibodies, you know, that uh, uh, that they really can give you the whole picture. And the majority of the cases, they do not have hypothyroidism. So anyway, this is another, but there's a disruption in the endocrine system where uh, TSH uh, uh, produces a little bit more than normal. And, and, and it might fool you thinking that, in fact, you have hypothyroidism, which you don't have. So I'm a big fan of me. <laughs> and so, you know, my favorite clip of the year is going to be one with me in it. That you begged us to let you come on the show, if I remember that. <laughs> I don't know about that's how, that. That's how it went. Is that how you remember I, it? That's how I remember it. That's fair. I remember it with Trevor on his knees asking me to come be on the show, but it's neither here nor there, out. right? It's kind of it's kind of irrelevant. You know who it was? I think it was the fans that begged for you to come on the show. If that's even remotely true, I am blown away and honored, but I don't know that that's true either. Well, I will say the potlucks that we're getting at here, Grant, they've been pretty well received. We've gotten a lot of great feedback and I'm going to attribute that to you. Well, I, I will say if nothing else, as evidenced in this clip, there is just a massive amount of knowledge that's put out there in the potlucks. No, there's not. <laughs> no, don't even so, don't even joke so about what, that. What is this clip? Give us the context. This is the very beginning of the very first potluck. Can I just say that this throw to the potluck is pretty much like a potluck episode in itself? <laughs> yeah, probably. Which is, is probably appropriate. So can I give you my thought process? I'd love when to hear this that. started the first potluck. Many years ago, when the first Jackass movie ever came out, <laughs> I read the reviews because I was really interested. What are the reviews going to be? And my favorite review of all time of a movie was somebody said, this movie might very well represent the start of the end of Western civilization. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going into these potlucks going, what is this going to be like? Where are we going to go? We hadn't figured out the format yet. We started this, we did this first three minutes and I went, this is the start of the end. Right. This yep. is so essentially what you're saying is that you could put my face on Fonzie's face when he was jumping Jump in the, the shark. shark. Yes, this clip is our, we jumped the shark. All right, so let's go to it. This is Fast Talk Jumping the Shark. We have Grant Holicky who can't stop playing with his phone. 
I, I it's just nice to be here. But, you know, unfortunately, you guys aren't the most entertaining people in the world all the time. So I have to entertain myself with the phone. Yeah, I'm okay. sure our listeners are looking at their phones, too, while we're talking. So, well, Pickle spends so much time talking to his phone breakfast. I don't need to hear about your breakfast. Hey, man, listen, when we got to do a sound check in the morning, I like to talk about what I had for breakfast. And we're back to the latte. Back to the latte. <laughs> Thanks. And I'm happy to be here, Trevor. We appreciate it. I want to I go to the Holicky household so when I can see you yelling at your kids for playing on their phone at dinner, I can be like, ha <laughs> Yeah. And real quick, can I point out that this morning for breakfast, Grant had toast with almond bread? Yeah, I had toast with toast. Yeah, it, it was a toast sandwich. I think I'm picturing this as a piece of toast, a piece of raw bread, and another piece of toast. Yeah, I'm anti-paleo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is truly about as unpaleo as you can possibly get. I, I, I tend to do that. I, I sit there in the morning. I try to think of what would be paleo, and then I go the opposite the direction. Opposite. Yeah, if you I could get it. like some gluten spread. <laughs> <laughs> to just put on top of the toast. What, it's, what, like, what? it's like that that Seinfeld episode where he orders Chinese food and goes, eh, extra MSG. That's me. <laughs> Can you put some gluten on that? What would the closest thing to gluten spread be? I don't even know how you'd make that. I actually want to know, like, if you could separate gluten and turn it into a paste, what wheat. that would taste <laughs> like. Right. Wheat paste. Next episode. All right, wheat paste episode. Yeah, I'm in. Okay, so this next clip is from episode 213 with Neil Henderson. A little bit of story, so Chris will remember this. This was an episode about the four days before a big event. Mm -hmm. And what you don't know is Chris and I recorded an entire episode with another guest on this topic. That was, I'm not going to give names or anything else, ended up being a very strange episode. Yeah, I think there were a lot of valuable insights in the episode, but there were some, it was just a weird dynamic. And ultimately he or she asked us not to run the episode. So we did, you guys did it again, which is great. Right. And that was how I left. It was, there were so many good practical pieces of advice in that. I was kind of disappointed in that. Yeah. But we brought in Neil and I got to say, Neil hit a home run on this. It great. was such a good episode on things you can do. And I was struggling actually to find the clip. But what I loved was he talked about sequencing, that you sequence out those four days. And one of the most important reasons to do that is if you don't fill your time right before a big event, you get nervous. Mm -hmm. So even if part of your sequence is just go see a movie. Right. Map it out. Preoccupy your mind so you're not fretting. All right. Let's hear what he has to say. And you talked to us right before we went on the air. I think you called it your, your sequence. Yeah, sequencing. So tell us a little bit about this. So you create a whole plan for those final days for your athletes. Yep. So the planning is really about helping an athlete be prepared both physically and mentally. And so the sequencing is a series of training sessions, but also other elements that we put into that schedule to take up some of that time that would normally be spent training. So great example of this actually with Rowan Dennis for his hour record, we went to a matinee movie one day. It was half an hour away from where we were staying. The movie itself was over two hours long, half an hour drive back. So that took three plus hours of time in the middle of the day on, on what was scheduled to be a rest day so that he wasn't just thinking about that. Because yep. the, the one thing that often happens when you don't have a plan to do something else with your time is you fill it sometimes with just spinning your wheels in your head and thinking too much and getting in your head if you don't have really good 
foundation of mental training that you've been doing, and then you start to go into that place, oh my gosh, you can be in trouble. And and some of that might be an, an elevation, an escalation of your energy inappropriately in the days leading up to it, which means then you're kind of empty on race day. I've seen that coaching collegiate athletes a lot of times. We would when I was coaching the the CU triathlon team, we would go out to California for the national championships, which were there every year at the Wildflower Triathlon. We'd have athletes, you know, we'd be leaving on Thursday and they were already at, you know, 10 out of 10 level and they dialed it up over the next two days on the drive out there, they get there. And then by the day before the race, they're coming off a high because yep. they've just been so jacked and they didn't they didn't manage that energy and on race day, they were just flat because they literally had just been running that psychological side at maximum for days and then had nothing left when it really mattered. So sequencing is about having certain things that you're doing in training, but also making sure that you're addressing all the rest of the non-training time and making sure that there's attention being paid to that and discussed, not just letting it up to chance. So is this something that you write out? Is this a plan that you create for each yeah, athlete? Yeah, so in a training schedule, there's certain components that we're going to practice this in advance of that, you know, let's call it an A race, you know, very high important race, whether that's a national championship or a qualifying event. We're going to go through this process typically a couple times in the lead up to that, starting many months out. And one of the best ways to do that is when you're doing some of your, your testing type efforts just to see where your fitness is at, if it's kind of a... a you know, power testing day that you're going to be doing, I will actually use the same sequencing in the last three, four or five days that they're going to use in their competition and taking into account like when the travel days might be. So in some cases, you know, you can just train, you know, you, you travel three days, you know, three days before it, you do opener and then race. Uh, that's a kind of typical standard if you're only traveling a couple hours. If you have a longer travel, it might be happening five days out is that travel day. And so we might take that day completely off and then think about, okay, riding easy and then doing some openers and event, having basically a schedule for that relative to actually what that travel schedule looks like. If you're doing big international travel, ideally you want to have that scheduled earlier, but very often it's just a matter of what's available flights or what, you know, what the timing of things yeah. is, what other events you've got going on or work responsibilities that you can't leave until this point or family. And so you may not be working in the ideal situation, but if you run through that consistent type of schedule in those days, you have a familiarity with it. And so there's not an absolute rigidity, but there's some consistency. And then what we might do is throw in a short clip of Neil pulled out his bag and we couldn't not make fun of him for that. Oh, Neil's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> he did tee it up for us without question. Rob and I have spent enough time around Neil to know that. <laughs> you, One of my would, favorite people in the whole world. Absolutely. One yes. of the, I've learned some of the most I've learned as a coach from Neil. But making fun of Neil's... Kind of like making fun of Trevor. It's pretty easy to do. <laughs> Get people to have around. I thought I was prepared when I saw what Neil kept in his bag. No. You, don't, you don't know prepared, which no. is why Neil, <laughs> which is why Neil was such a great episode, a great, uh, great contributor, a great guest. That's why Neil was so great for this episode. Yes. I don't know if any of you guys have seen Harry Potter, but they have in Harry Potter where they have a little bag and then they pull like a car out of it yeah. and pull things that are much bigger than the back. I was waiting for Neil to do that. <laughs> I was waiting for Neil to pull an entire bicycle. Yeah, spare bike. Out spare bike, spare wheels. little backpack. Neil pulled a bag 
a smaller bag out of the bag that he came with that had race food, yep. various painkillers in case no, he's there. No, no painkillers. No, no. So Benadryl in Benadryl? case you have an allergic uh, uh, okay, reaction, yes. you're going to die. We have Sudafed in case you have a sinus issue when you're on a plane. Those kind of headaches are the worst. It's another Sudafed. They are bad. And... Uh, well, we got emergency or immune, you know. Yeah, got some yep. food. Scratch we bar. Got a bar. We got a bag of almonds. We've got earplugs in case you forget your headphones or you have a snoring roommate. When you room with people you don't know, you're often going to need those. We got some hand sanitizer. We got a modium if you have a bad GI issue. That's the other thing there. We have a packet of oatmeal. We have some lip balm, again, very dry. Have a, a toothbrush and toothpaste in there have some tissues, and most importantly, a small packet of Cholula. Which can do anything for you. It, it can probably sanitize your water it'll if you're put, drinking out of so a hose. It'll, it'll put you in a good headspace, too. If you've had bland food and you need to spice it up, you go to that Cholula, it's like, bam, I'm ready for anything. All I can say is we have picked the perfect person for this episode <laughs> because there, right there is his like prep for anything Be bad. ready. Yeah, and failure to plan is a plan to him. fail. <laughs> and this, that's, this backpack goes with me everywhere. When people pick it up, they're like, what do you have in there? I'm like, it's everything. what I don't have in there, and it's nothing. I don't not have anything. I have everything I need to exist for at least a week in a foreign land. And, and Money, it, coins, bills, all kinds of currency. I'm ready. Alter Exploration is a new custom cycling tour company created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder, Chris Case. Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Alter's trips aren't so much a vacation as an exploration of the destination and of yourself. At the end of every day, be preoccupied as much by the transformative experience as by the satisfaction of exhaustion. Reach a greater understanding of your physical and mental capabilities while simultaneously experiencing a jaw-dropping landscape. Life altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. Okay, this next one is from a really recent episode. This is actually from Dr. Steven Seiler's show. This is his third episode where he brought in a, a very high-level European coach who develops world tour athletes, and I'm going to apologize profusely. When I read the intro for that episode a month ago, I listened to Dr. Seiler say the name, and then I spent five minutes practicing it and have forgotten everything. Trevor, don't apologize. Just own it. Just get it out there. It's a, Norwe it. it's a Norwegian name. It's it good. is. Own and it. I know it doesn't sound anything like it looks. So it is Esperin Erzgold. Perfect. We'll go with that. We'll go with it. And my apologies. What I loved about this episode was you heard the physiologist, the person who has formalized this polarized training concept, talking to a coach who comes completely from the, the world of experience, very experienced coach, and listening to him talk about how he coaches his athletes. And what you hear is all these principles that Dr. Seiler has, has put into his research being applied and you hear that pure application side, which was just fascinating to me. So it, it was a really interesting episode to listen to. Take Check it, away. it out. That's where that urgency versus patience comes in because, you know, it's easy to think, oh man, my threshold is 320 and I need it to be 
380. <laughs> well, that's a pretty damn big jump. Uh, and it's not going to happen in one season. And, and I guess, you know, how do you, what's the time frame? And, and, and maybe even masters can learn from that, the, the patience aspect of it. Yeah, I think a good rule of thumb is that the lower the wattage or the power, the longer it takes to develop. So it's easy to develop sprint power or around threshold or 30 seconds. So or that, that comes fast and goes fast away. But yeah. the foundation work that yeah, creates do quite some time but I, I also think that one of, one of the main things that we are talking about is that um, when we expose the riders for workouts they have to be in in balance so if you if you imagine that you you have a battery at 100 percent and you, you go to do a session then it's probably it's not easy if it's a hard session it's still hard but then if, if you start the morning with the low sleep and the kids who have been crying all night, which I actually have riders on the team that has kids, and sometimes the sleep quality is not good enough. So then we have need to have a, made a suggestion to, to what the plan is. Because there's no plan that's so important that if you feel, feel bad today that you should just do it to do it. So if your battery is at 80%, then there, was all, then there will also be a relative effect. So it's, it's, it's all about adjusting to where you are at any given time and, and, and progress you will, you will see more over weeks and months than from a day-to-day basis. Well, yeah, and oh man, there's, there's no athlete that doesn't relate to this, to the things you're talking about now, which is that life happens and there's day-to-day stressors. So when that athlete is scheduled to do a a workout, a hard session, but everything tells you that they're not ready for it or they're not, they're compromised at some level, whether it's they're 80% of a hundred, you know. So what is your typical rule of thumb? Is it better for them to do a, a reduced version of that hard workout? Or do you say, no, we just go easy today. Or do you give them a rest day? I mean, on that continuum, how do you solve that adjustment? Issue. Now I'm going to start by saying what you research guys says. So your scientists, it depends. It depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but it, but it, it really does. I think you have to look at the courses. And you have to look at the total volume that you had coming up to the session. You have to do, figure out is there any illnesses upcoming, and you have to look at the days to come. But most of the time, I'm just saying, uh, take a day off, enjoy it. You're not go- you're not going to get many of those, and to like mm-hmm. reduce the like the mental stress of not having done a workout. And and if you, as you taught me, if you're going to have a five percent increase during a half a year or a year, how much better do you need to be in each workout? That's not much. I think it's. Yeah. Um, we don't need to have a lot of those workouts, but if they happen, uh, yeah, seldom, then it's okay. If not, we have to look at the training program, the practice of uh, activities of the daily life, sleep, nutrition, are there any quarrels with their spouses, any problems with children, etc., etc. Because you have the training stress, and then you also have the cognitive stress. And it's the sum of those who creates the total stress. And if you have a lot of bad things on your mind or something that you worry about, 
then you will go throughout the day and the night and everything to reduce yourself. So your battery is maybe at 60%. Mm. Then it's maybe, maybe it's best thing is to, to go to and do something you like and forget about the training. Be with your friends, go see a movie, <laughs> go to a pub or whatever. But it's remarkable, even though a lot of our athletes that we work with will train 500 times in a, in a year, 600 some of them in, in some sports, they will be so afraid of taking a day off. How do you manage that fear, the fear of, you know, that I'm missing something that someone else that I'm competing against is getting because they're not taking this day off? That's a good question. I think I think some of the times I just say maybe it's my fault because I put, put, put the training program that's too ambitious. And then uh, and other times uh, the course is quite clear. It's back to, to just putting things into perspective. If we have a workout or a training session that, that's going to be planned to increase your VO2 max, then we know you need to be have a status of being being like a, also in a state of mind to dig dig deep enough because those sessions are really hard. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we use a lot is we use Borg scale. So, for instance, uh, if I can take a, a VO two max session, then I say with the first first interval, then you should probably reach fifteen on Borg scale. Okay, so this clip, I titled it Truly Practical Advice. This is an episode that we did with Lauren Valley about cross-training, so it's about cyclists running and runners getting on the bike. And something that, you know, we, we often sit down and evaluate our episodes, how that go, and quite often we make the comment, we threw a ton of science in there, we brought in a lot of concepts, we didn't get nearly enough practical advice. What was fun about this episode was this episode was just a giant, let's give tons and tons of practical stuff. And she got to, here is what cyclists should be doing when they run and why cyclists tend to run wrong. And we were doing this right when I was getting into my month of running Mm -hmm. and I started applying what she did. Month of running. (laughs) I started applying what she recommended and wow, it made a difference. So this was, I learned something. This was great practical advice. Was it a month of running previously because you were doing it wrong and now you could turn it into maybe two or three months of running? Trevor's a runner now, believe it or not. Periodically. You heard it here first. Because of her, I am now faster than an 11 minute mile. Sweet. Ooh. Nice work. Yeah. And I think you're going to walk a 10 minute mile. My six-year-old child ran an eight-minute mile the other day. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done that yet this year. <laughs> Your six-minute child is... Six-minute child. Fast. You're thinking about six-minute abs, bro. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. You're... Six-year-old. Eight-year-old, six-minute. No. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, in all seriousness, this topic of runners riding and riders running is something that, that I really enjoy, and I'll, I'll try to put into the training for a lot of my cyclists to have them run. That's because your cyclists are cyclocross racers. I'm talking about my road guys, too. Mm, they're the same people. No. I'm talking about guys that don't get on dirt. Dirty? Yeah, they don't get dirty. They don't get dirty. So I, I, this is really informative and really helpful. Great. Let's hear it now. I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of why a cyclist might run. And so when a cyclist is thinking about incorporating running into their program, a couple of things stand out. Biomechanically, when one rides a bike, you're in hip flexion. And when we're running, you're creating power through hip extension. And that is not typically 
a movement pattern that if you're only cycling that you are used to, except when you're walking. And so the first thing is a cyclist wants to understand that I may have this big aerobic engine and when I go to run, I, I am learning a new skill. Running is a sport, it seems quite simple. You just need running shoes, but there are things to think about. So I'll start with that hip flexion position where you're creating power on the bike and, and why it's important to understand cognitively what's happening when you're running is run speed is a function of stride length and turnover or cadence. And in order to increase stride length to go faster, a lot of cyclists will kick their leg out in front of them because they're used to being in hip flexion and they don't have that great range of motion to actually extend their leg behind them and drive their leg back using their glute and firing in that position. So it may be that if you're a cyclist and starting to run, I would encourage you to start with, if you can aim for you know, 90 strides, single foot strides per minute, that's great. And I can walk you through how you actually count that. Um, but watches like Garmin's will tell you approximately what your turnover is. But taking short, choppy steps in the beginning and running pretty light is going to be important for two reasons. What I just said about hip extension and developing the range of motion that you're going to need. And the second is developing the resilience and durability in the tendons and the ligaments of your body as you're starting to run, whereas we don't have the same strain on your body when you're cycling. So, yeah, actually, that's really interesting. I want to ask you more about that. So I can tell you as a cyclist who in the off season always puts on the running shoes, I always end up getting a lot of pain in my Achilles. And I can tell you, I am a, I guess what you'd call a, a foot dragger. I don't really lift my feet off the ground. I just kind of shuffle run. What should I, you know, any cyclist like me, how should we improve that? What should we be focusing on as we run? So there's nothing wrong with shuffling. And, and actually, if you're use, using running just as a supplement to, to get some more cardiovascular training, some variety, it's not a problem necessarily to shuffle. Actually, a lot of triathletes, even top triathletes who are running off the bike, do something called an Ironman shuffle. Their feet stay quite low. They're not like track runners where their knees are driving straight forward really high and they have this high um, heel recovery. And so the first thing I would say is you may just need to work on short bouts of hard running, possibly uphill. So when I was looking through clips for this episode, I had different themes. I had funny and this one, this one's informative. I think this entire episode, this was, uh, Trevor, if you remember the recording with Dr. Kenefick, it was 221 on dehydration. This whole episode was about a giant knowledge bomb. And uh, in this one, you know, Dr. Kenefick is talking about how hydration or dehydration is going to affect performance. But for me, what was interesting was the entire cascade of things that are happening throughout this, I thought was really informative and people should know it. Well, let's hear it now. Are there general recommendations that, that you have for athletes in terms of fluid replacement based on sweat loss? And I'm thinking in particular, you recently just published a study where you were saying to prevent dehydration, you generally need to replace about 37 to 54% of your, your sweat rate. But I found really interesting is, and this was in runners, you pointed out that under an hour of activity, you, you might not need to replace anything at all. Yeah, and that, and that gets back into that situation I was describing earlier of, you know, it depends. So one of the ideas when we start talking about sweating and that sweating relationship to fluid loss and dehydration is its impact on performance. 
And if we have to draw a line in the sand, and there's you know people who don't agree with us, and that's and that's fine. But we just have to draw a line in the sand and look into the literature. When we talk about a two percent loss, two percent dehydration, and that's relative to to your body weight. So if you were to lose two percent of your body weight through sweat, just sweating, so measure weigh yourself and then exercise for an hour, weigh yourself again. If you haven't taken anything, any fluid or food during that time, you can just do the math and you can calculate what your your sweat rate was in that hour. How much did you lose? You know, did I lose you know half a liter or a liter and whatever that is. And so that that can give an an, an idea to athletes to say, I, I understand what my sweat rate is. That sweat rate can change. I mentioned acclimatization. Does it become acclimatized or acclimated? I actually will probably I will sweat more. I'll, my sweat will become more hypotonic. I'll conserve more of the sodium, but I'll lose more sweat. I'm more able, I'll sweat earlier in activity, I'll sweat more profusely. So my water, my fluid needs are going to be greater. So one of the things that I would say my colleague, Sam Trevant, who writes quite often with me, one of the things that we would say for individuals who are serious about performance, then they need to understand this idea of when they're going to be approaching this 2% loss, because that's where performance is going to start to become altered. And if you can maintain your fluid balance such that you're not approaching that 2%, then you should be okay, at least as far as performance goes. And, you know, there, it, I've mentioned this before, there are downstream effects to becoming dehydrated, to sweating. You know, as your blood volume becomes less and you become hypovolemic, there are cardiovascular adaptations that happen as well. And some of those, like an increased heart rate, can also play a role on performance. It also plays a role on perception, the ratings of perceived exertion. How hard do I feel I'm working? So all of these things should be taken to account. Activities like you've mentioned for an hour, you probably won't approach 2% loss because the duration just isn't long enough. And for most individuals, it's just not intense enough for you to generate that much heat where you lose 2% in that period of time. It could be possible for very, very large individuals who are you know, I don't want to say this and say, well, geez, you know, people who are linemen are playing football in the South and, you know, in August wearing all that equipment, you know, those individuals might be able to do that. For the most part, for any, any activities, it's possible you wouldn't need to drink at all during an, an event of an hour or less because you won't approach 2% loss for, for the most part. When you are going to do activities or you're going to compete and you are going to approach that 2% loss or you've calculated, you figured out how much do I sweat? I believe it's important for individuals to have a plan. How am I going to think about fluid intake to attenuate my losses such that I don't cross that 2% line? So an, an example for myself in 2012, I was running quite a bit and I wanted one of my goals was to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And I sweat a lot and I knew my sweat rate at the time. And I knew that for my circumstance, I had failed in a number of, of longer runs, half marathons, approaching marathon distances, because I was becoming too dehydrated. I couldn't drink enough to offset how much I was sweating. I was approaching that 2%, going over that 2% line, not having enough fluid, and that affected my performance such that I couldn't qualify. So what I, I needed to do was to determine circumstances under which I wouldn't sweat so much, and that would have, have to be a cooler environment. So I wound up finding a race in December and, and going to that race because it was so cool. 
I wouldn't have to thermoregulate as much. I wouldn't lose as much fluid and still having a plan to drink in order to attenuate the fluid losses. So my performance would be less affected. So I, I would say that those circumstances, when you're looking at you know, longer activities, now we're talking endurance activities, it could be cycling, it could be running, could be adventure racing, any of these types of activities that are going on for those longer periods of time, you do need to start thinking about, okay, how much fluid could I particularly lose in this event if I know my sweat rate? How much do I really need to be thinking that I'm taking in? Those circumstances too, it's important to have fluid that is not hypotonic. So fluid that has an electrolyte in it. The other thing we haven't really mentioned is drinking in too much fluid and the dangers of hyponatremia. So situations where people lose an appreciable amount of sodium, we see this a lot in longer, longer duration events, there's training scenarios in the military, and then people drink back just water. There's, that's why we call it hypotonic fluid intake. And that actually dilutes your sodium in your plasma. And that can have serious detrimental effects to your nervous system. It can cause seizures. It can cause death. And so that's very, very serious. So there's another idea. You know, you need to understand if you're in these events and you are losing sodium because it's, you know, it's going on for so long. Again, you need to be planning, okay, what should I be drinking or what should I be eating so that I'm not putting myself at risk for hyponatremia by drinking just plain water and putting myself at risk. Okay, so my next one is our episode with Dr. Bent Ronestad. Rob and I can both tell you this is one of the premier researchers, you know, pure, let's, let's get some studies in, do some really good exercise physiology research. We're always excited to read his stuff. And I'm proud to say this was his first podcast recording ever. Right, and we... Wow almost kind of bullied him to come on the show because he English is not his first language. He was concerned, but we got him on, and that was really exciting to us. Probably mentioned his name a hundred times on the show. Yeah, we have. Yeah. There was a bunch that we could have picked in this episode, but what I found really fun about the clip you're about to listen to is, A, you hear a little bit of that researcher. He talks about some of the history of research, how they come up with these concepts, but then what's fun is he goes into one of his first studies as a PhD student and goes into the, well, they wanted me to study the athletes doing three-hour rides, but I had to be the one in the room while they're doing these three-hour rides. So I really tried to push for a two-hour ride. So you hear one of the preeminent researchers basically saying, I wanted to be lazy. (laughs) (laughs) Let's listen now. Yeah, so it it seems to that there is a potential to increase your... uh, your cycling performance by adding uh, strength training. So I know there was some research earlier on, 80s and 90s, that looked at whether strength training could help endurance athletes and had concluded it really doesn't because they were studying VO2 max and economy and it doesn't seem like strength training will help VO2 max. There's mixed results in economy. So I guess my question to you, and this is what I found really interesting in your research, is where are the benefits? How does strength training help endurance athletes? Yeah, probably it's, we have the determining factors for endurance performance and probably the, it seems like there is a small benefit on, on, um, on different places that ultimately adds up making the performance better in my point of view. So take for instance, the, the work economy, or cycling economy uh, measurements. As I read the literature, there is uh, indications that when you are 
untrained or, or moderately trained that you see an improved cycling economy when we're measuring it like the traditional way uh, by doing um, like five minutes submaximal exercise boats um, below threshold uh, and you are in a quite fresh state. Um, there is in indications that work economy measured this way can be improved. Uh, what we have done in some of our studies, we have, we have uh, prolonged these submaximal measurements. And in my first study, uh, which was a part of my PhD, we, we, we had the, the riders cycling for three hours at a, at a low intensity. And then in the last hour of those three hours, we saw an improved economy, which we did not see in the beginning, in the fresh state. And we finalized those three hours of submaximal riding with a five-minute all-out performance test where they should uh, have as high mean power output as possible. And then we saw that a strength training group, which improved their economy during the last hour or those three hours of submaximal riding, had a quite large improvement in five-minute power compared to the control group. So maybe then you have to induce some sort of fatigue in order to see the benefits of the strength training in terms of the cycling economy, which then might have saved energy for the last five-minute bouts of that test. I'd love to talk to you about that research protocol because, you know, as you pointed out, the traditional way of measuring economy, we didn't really see any improvement there. And that seems to be how most people would fall back to the laboratory-based measurement. What inspired you? Did you have any insight into the fact that strength training might improve during longer durations. Why did you choose to do this sort of longer thing? And I love that you did because I think that that's very relevant for people who are out on the road. Yeah, yeah. And, and that thing you're mentioning there is, is one factor because we know that in uh, especially the road cycling, that uh, the cyclists are cycling for many hours. And if they are just sitting in the peloton and uh, waiting... If, toward the final push, uh, towards the end of the race. So one part of our choice was to imitate real competitions. Right. And then, of course, we had in back of our head potential mechanisms why strength training could, in theory, improve uh, performance and also work economy. And some of those uh, are uh, maybe easier to detect in a more fatigued state than in a fresh state. And then we had a discussion Actually, whether it should be two or three hours submaximal cycling. And I was the PhD student who was supposed to do all the work. So I tried to argue carefully that two hours might be enough. <laughs> <laughs> but then I had some supervisors and there is a reason why you have some supervisors. So then they, they argue that three hours should be good. So of course, we went for three hours. And uh, afterwards, uh, I do not regret that choice. <laughs> Hey listeners, it's Dee Dee Barry. Julie and I are launching a fresh new series this January that focuses 100% on the female endurance athlete. As we ring in the new year, our hope is to empower coaches and athletes with this cutting edge science-based information that's all about the female athlete. We'll be covering topics like performance, nutrition, youth athletic development, and training throughout pregnancy. We look forward to sharing this rich and enlightening information with you. All right, so let's finish out our favorite episodes. We have to finish with this. Chris, you actually were here for part of 2022. So can you, you explain this one a little bit? 
Uh, the episode or the fact that it the was clip. riddled with... <laughs> well, I can explain it. Chris stopped caring. I just wanted to leave people with a gem. You know, I wanted to go out with a, a blaze of glory. Show his true It wasn't true planned. Self. It certainly wasn't planned. Can I give a little backstory? Because I've always interested that this was part of it. So you might not know this. I don't particularly like to swear. Mm-hmm. I very rarely <laughs> swear. So there was But a, that's what... It gives it more power when you do. Yeah, you really need to piss him the f- off to get him to swear. Thanks, Rob. So something nobody knows is I was the editor of the show for a long mm, time. This is true. And Chris would always record the intro at another time. So we wouldn't record the intros live. We would do it later. And Chris, knowing that I don't really like to swear, would always end the intro with the swear word of the week and would try to see how uncomfortable <laughs> He could make me. Yeah, that was fun. I was never sitting in the room while you were editing, so I don't know how uncomfortable you got, but you tell me sometimes. Probably the most uncomfortable I got is when we hired Jana. Neither of us knew her yet, and you did not stop the swear word oh, yeah. the week. Well, I took a chance. I went on a little bit of a flyer. I left her a swear word of the day. I've left Kelly swear words of the day as well. But with Jana, you know, I didn't know her at all. And I left one, but then she would give it back. And she basically ended everything when she used the ultimate. I'm not even going to repeat it on the air, but it was the ultimate swear word of the day. And I said, okay, you win. So with that, Chris said his farewell. I wanted wanted to see Trevor squirm as much as possible on my way out. And so I left him a few little gifts. And it was in the moment. I did not rehearse. I did not plan. And I did not practice. And I just went for it. It was very organic. There was, I think there was some some encouragement from the peanut gallery as well. I was encouraging. (laughs) I think I was back here doing this. (laughs) No, you weren't back here. You wouldn't come into the office. You were on oh, the computer, I was, jerk I was, face. I, oh, you know where I was? I was in, I remember that. I was in my garage on the computer listening to that. Laughing right. yeah. my <laughs> leap off. Well, yeah. let's listen to it now. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating Wait, and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your motherfucking feedback. Join the conversation (laughs) at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk's laboratories at motherfastdoglabs.com slash join and become a part of the education and coaching community. For Trevor Carter, Ben Delaney, Grant Holicky, Robert Pickles. You really have to pay Kelly more Thanks to bleep all that out. <laughs> and don't ever expect to hear Chris again. And he literally dropped the mic. <laughs> can we do that? Is that okay? We can I don't mother- care. <laughs> <laughs> literally. And I'm out.